0: sexual
1: health. How can
3: relationships relationships evolve evolve with people people as they grow grow and change?
1: I always sort of start way before that, which is healing the relationship with the self as really being the primary focus and the foundation from which then, yes, we can treat your anxiety, we can treat your stress and your trauma. But if you don't have a good relationship with yourself, then you will never be able to have mental health in general or overall well-being or treat any of the other things that you might be coming to therapy for.
2: Welcome to the Curious Folks Podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships, my name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And
3: in our last Pride Month episode, we want to talk about what keeps us from feeling proud of our gender orientation and what we can do to create space for us and others to live into the full expression of who we are. And to have this layered conversation about what helps us form our identity and what contributes to us feeling proud or ashamed of who we are, we spoke with two guests. One to talk us through the internal journey of identity formation.
1: So my name is Ariana Moran and I use she and her pronouns and I am a queer identified clinical psychologist living and working in Brooklyn, New York. And another, to talk about the external factors that suppress or amplify our full expression
3: as queer folks.
0: I'm Max Fenning. I am the founder and president of PRISM, and we're an LGBT nonprofit that works to expand access to LGBT inclusive education and sexual health resources for young people in South Florida.
2: Depending on the country or the state that you live in, the community that you're a part of, or the home that you are raised in, It may not be so easy to feel proud of being lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, or any of the beautiful colors of the rainbow. It takes a nurturing environment to encourage authenticity and a big, brave heart to step into that authenticity day in, day out. It's this delicate balance between our external world and our internal world that helps us form and feel proud of our identity. So let's talk about the early formation.
3: Much of Dr. Ariana Moran's work focuses on identity. She works with people who are in the process of discovering new or unrecognized parts of themselves, particularly related to their gender orientation. As her work developed, she found that the building blocks of our identity are formed during childhood and then evolve over time.
1: I actually started in graduate school specializing in working with transgender youth through the work of Dr. Laura edwards Sleeper, who was a very close mentor and professor of mine. And so that was sort of an early specialization area. And I sort of started to learn how to work with gender identity in the therapy room and gender assessment with trans teens. And then when I moved to New York for my postdoc and I started just working on, you know, taking a deep dive into like being a therapist as a whole psychotherapy, not not specific to gender, then I sort of started to understand what my style was, how I could bring myself into the room as a therapist, how I could really embrace and embody how I look at the world. And I just realized that through this work with my clients, gender and sexuality and romantic attraction. These are facets of identity, but really the core is identity itself, who we are and the fact that it's multifaceted and it's contradictory and it's fluid and it's dynamic. And I sort of started to realize like, oh my gosh, that's what I care about the most is helping people come into their most authentic expression of self and being able to understand who am I in the world? How do I take up space? How does it feel to inhabit my own skin? And then with that, you can start to understand the more nuanced facets, you know, of marginalized identities or other identities.
3: I love the the adjectives that you used around conflicting and fluid, and because that that's part of the conversation that we've been having around, particularly around labels and how labels tend to put us in a particular place and in a box. And can we get in them? Can we get out of them? Can we leverage them for what they are? But then pull in different pieces. And so in the the formation of identity and and looking at what is even possible internally and externally, I'm wondering if you can walk us through that process. What does identity formation look like?
1: yeah I love starting here, and I'm going to do this psychologist cliche and it really does start with the early years, but we all form an identity very early on based on cultural expectations and where we come from and the belief systems of our families of origin and I think that this is one of the biggest tragedies that we do to our young people is we have this really deeply ingrained social conditioning from an early age that there's a right or a wrong way to be in the world, and we use this very moral Language about you are a good person if this, you are a bad person if this. And so, from that process, I think that children form, you know, their self concept, which means their relationship with themselves. And I think that that relationship to self becomes part of your identity. So, for example, you know, if your needs were not met during childhood, you might have formed a belief about yourself that you're not lovable or that you're not worthy of care. And then that becomes a part of something that you identify with. And then that shows up as an adult everywhere in all of your relationships and your work. And, you know, it just sort of trickled down from there. So that's a little bit just about how identity formation is formed in general. But then as we grow and have life experiences, identities evolve over time, you know, based on personality factors and likes, dislikes, formative relationships, exposure to new ways of thinking. So I think a lot of times identity means unlearning what you were taught when you were little. I think that's a primary part of identity formation. Thinking about unlearning as a part
2: of the identity formation was eye-opening, and we want to dig a little deeper. We know that gender and sexual orientation are essential parts of who we are. They are hard-coded into our operating system, if you will. And then there's new code that gets written based on our experiences and our social influences. So, we were curious, when we turn inward to figure out who we are, how can we pass apart what is essentially us and what is learned or internalized?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question because I think a lot of what happens is that internal operating system gets repressed. And so we have these parts of ourselves that are part of our code that we don't end up knowing about or embracing or accepting. One of the biggest pieces of this question is that the parts of our identity code that are there and that are unmutable are the ones that end up being sort of repressed or denied so often and I think that in place of that we end up leaning into these other parts of the identity that are more formed based on life experiences or relationships that are more acceptable that aren't any less true or authentic but that sometimes are the ones that we spend more time cultivating because that means that we're acceptable to other people so I'm talking about things like what you do for work or maybe in a relationship like what you like in the bedroom based on what your partner's preferences are, like things that evolve based on you plus another person or plus an external factor. And then I think that other work, that deeper work, the more vulnerable work comes from unrepressing and undenying those parts of the code, you know, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, your romantic attraction, and coming to really accept those over time as parts of yourself that can't change. And they are really a core part of who you are.
3: As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, To be yourself in a world that constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Few know this better than Max Fenning, the founder of PRISM, a nonprofit whose mission is to expand access to LGBTQ inclusive education and sexual health resources for young people in South Florida. Max believes that the ability to recognize, accept, and live into one's identity, gender, and orientation is made possible through representation, language, and safe
0: spaces. I know that that there's this very cliche term of representation matters, but that's real. I think that when you see your own experiences or feelings embodied in someone else and, and allow yourself to see that from an external point of view, that in and of itself is so, so, so impactful for queer people. And I think that being able to have those examples means so much in defining our identity. And I also think that part of that does come about from having a safe space and, and also having language. And I think that that's the big thing is, you know, we have such a wide diversity of gender and a wide diversity of sexual orientation. And for so many people, they don't have language to explain their experiences with gender or sex or, or romantic attraction. And so being able to have that sort of education to to know how to like put words to those experiences is also so important impactful for people. And then obviously, it's having a safe space, right? So I think that being able to explore your, your gender identity and explore your sexual orientation safely and in, in a space where you feel like you can do so, you know, openly and freely it is also so important for, for that aspect of self-discovery. And so I think that when we're talking about safe spaces, there are two things to note, right? So it's, it's, do we have shared experiences that are really going to connect us and as having that perspective, but also how can we unite multiple perspectives into a shared goal, right? The experiences of the LGBT community, while they have through lines, are are varied, right? We're not a monolith. And and so it's how do we connect each other through not just our shared experiences, but also a shared goal to be able to find that sense of community and that sense of purpose. And so I think that that in and of itself is so impactful. And that can vary between so many things. It can be fighting against anti-LGBT legislation, or it could just be having a safe space where people can feel heard. And then I think the other thing to save space is, right, is listening, especially when we have these the, this diversity of experiences across race, across gender, across sexual orientation. Are we able to listen to other people and other people's lived experiences and understand that, again, we're not a monolith and they're not going to be necessarily be reflective of our own experiences. They're going to provide this new insight.
2: In the absence of, or complement to, having a community or a home that nurtures your identity as a queer person, therapy often becomes that space. As a therapist specializing in gender identity and sexual orientation, Ariana has created an environment where people can find support, guidance, understanding, and empathy as they seek their inner truth. And while she hopes that the therapeutic container could be a place for that exploration, she believes that true healing comes from the work that we do within our internal spaces
1: our relationship with ourselves. It's a little bit ironic and a little bit sad, I think, that people come to therapy with these ideas, these grandiose ideas of what they want to work on and that they want to completely get rid of anxiety or that they want to never have stress or that they want to be a whole new different person. And I think, of course, those are really beautiful goals to have, but I always sort of start way before that, which is Healing the relationship with the self as really being the primary focus and the foundation from which, then, yes, we can treat your anxiety, we can treat your stress and your trauma. But if you don't have a good relationship with yourself, then you will never be able to have mental health in general or overall well being or treat any of the other things that you might be coming to therapy for. So I always try to sort of manage expectations with clients that this therapy process requires a lot of internal looking. And it requires you to be willing and vulnerable to look at yourself and to be able to sort of sit with the feelings that come up when we really sit with the self as a whole. And that's this whole other chapter of therapy is how to regulate and manage the emotional experience and all the baggage that comes with really being able to look at yourself.
2: I think we were asking to the idea of like, what is the road to understanding one's identity look like, right? So what I'm hearing from you is like the first step is something that we actually feel very strongly on this podcast and, and know thyself, right? That's kind of mm-hmm. know thyself. I also feel strongly about this idea that there's so much talk in our noise about like love yourself, right? There's a lot of encouragement of, you know, you must love yourself. And I think where we probably need to start with really being able to tolerate ourselves, first and foremost, and sort of once we're able to sort of get to know ourselves and and get to a place where we can tolerate ourselves, I think from that we can look towards creating something or or stepping into our identity, stepping into our wholeness. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you.
1: Yeah, exactly. I could not agree more. I love that word tolerate because I think that there's a lot of... Well meaning language around right now about self love. And I think that the intention is great, but you really can't go from self hatred to self love overnight. I mean, you just will never be able to do that. And I think a lot of the process in therapy is sort of helping people like have realistic expectations of themselves that we're not really expecting you. You don't have to embrace all of the parts of yourself, you know, you just have to accept that they're there and do not deny them is really what's important. And, and the process of doing that means, I think you have to look at how you move through the world and like how you show up in relationships and really start to sort of pay close attention to like where your reactions coming from and what are they and what memories and what sort of like formative experiences. And I think there's so many pieces that come into like figuring out the self-awareness. And then once you're there, it requires this like sitting with and being with whatever it is you've unearthed. And again, you don't have to love it. You know, you just have to acknowledge that it's a part of you and that that's okay. Gender identity, sexuality, they've been so marginalized in the self. It's been much more of a fight, you know, to be able to understand and accept those parts of who we are. I think for everyone who does identify from within those communities. So I'm thinking about some of the people that I work with feel like they have to exist In more traditional ways, in certain spaces, like, a lot of people feel a lot of pressure, you know, to exist, or to present, you know, for example, on the gender binary, even if internally, they don't actually really identify that way, they might be a little more fluid, or they might be a little more non binary. But in this space, this specific space, they feel like the only way they're going to be accepted is if they're presenting on the binary. I'm thinking of a couple teenagers I work with who have this beautiful, colorful, sort of gender expansive way of being in the world. And oftentimes when they go to school or when they're home with their parents, they feel like they have to wear something specific or they have to speak in a specific way, or maybe they use, you know, they and she pronouns, but they have to sort of only use she pronouns in certain spaces. And, So I think that's really hard because they're basically being asked by society to give up this part of themselves in order to exist in this one specific space. And it creates a lot of internal tension. And a lot of the work in therapy is helping people understand that you're doing these things not to deny yourself, but because this is maybe the way that you know how to be safe. And that maybe this is self-protective and it's adaptable and it's flexible and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. You're basically doing exactly what the situation is asking of you. And that's sort of a cognitive and emotional flexibility. That's a skill. It's a strength. But it doesn't mean that you're not who you are at the end of the day. And if you know that internally and you feel grounded and rooted in that identity, then that's what's really important. That's what matters.
3: One of the ways in which our society pressures people into suppressing parts of themselves to fit in is through shame. Shame is a force that starts from the outside and then creeps its way inside, creating internal conflict, anxiety, and depression.
1: And I think shame is an example of both external and internal, that you are actively being shamed by people in your life or systems, and then you're also internally shaming yourself for having a different gender identity or sexual orientation or romantic attraction. I think also externally, there's lack of representation, is a huge one, lack of exposure to people who think like you, people who identify like you. This relationship to self that I've been talking about is one of the biggest. That if you have a poor relationship with yourself, that's going to be a huge barrier. And that's connected to having poor mental health. Like if you have, you know, anxiety, depression, or trauma, you're going to have a lot of mental noise or emotional noise that's going to get in the way of you being able to really operate from a place of authentic self. Then I think also there's things like traumatic experiences that really shape us. And one other thing that I can think about is being in limiting relationships with other people and systems actually too. people who sort of don't support or don't accept or don't uplift certain parts of your identity. People might be motivated then to deny or repress parts of themselves in order to preserve the relationship or in order to make someone else happy or to fit into this specific system. And we really have to be surrounded with people who are curious and uplifting and systems that represent us and acknowledge us. Historically, in the U.S.
2: and elsewhere, systems have not been designed to represent or acknowledge those in the minorities, including LGBTQ people. Currently, there are efforts across multiple countries to undo and undermine any progress that has been made towards equitable representation. In the U.S., there has recently been legislation that has made global news.
0: The one that, that made headlines that some listeners might be <laughs> might have heard rumblings of is the Don't Say Gay Bill. It's, uh, it's HB 1557, Parental Rights in Education, more commonly known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. And essentially what it aims to do is prohibit the discussion of gender identity or sexual orientation and classroom instruction for k three, or... And I got to put this or part in there, a way that is an age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students, according to state standards. And state standards don't say what is or is not age appropriate for students. We don't really know. It's super vague. And then it gives parents the opportunity to sue teachers if they think that something violates this bill. And again, it's so vague that anything does. It creates this environment where teachers aren't going to want to talk about anything related to the LGBT community for fear that a parent is going to get their panties in a twist and decide to sue. We know that there are are parents in Florida who think that talking about anything related to the LGBT community, talking about the Stonewall riots, just like talking about marriage equality is inherently inappropriate for like a 17 year old. So, Mm -hmm. and they have every right to sue uh, a teacher at that point. So what teacher is going to want to like open themselves up to that? So it creates this really, really hostile environment for queer people, for the discussion of queer people in schools, even in like higher grade levels, not to Mm -hmm. mention these more like formative foundational years of, of a kid's life.
3: I imagine it's complicated for queer teachers because if you have a picture of yourself and your partner up, or if you are trans or gender nonconforming and you use different pronouns, like even just being now possibly could get you sued. And so just that feeling in that space. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, what's so, so, so scary about this is like, it's so vague. It's like a, it's 163 lines of the most vague bullshit I've ever <laughs> seen, especially someone who like is in the nonprofit sphere now and like has to write policies, and like I'm very, very big on like clarity, right, like making sure like everything's defined, like everyone's on the same page, there's no gray area, so reading this, I was like, y'all are y'all do this for a living, <laughs> like mm-hmm. yeah, write this legislation like, for a living, and this is what you came up with, but it's on purpose
1: right,
2: intentionally vague, yeah, it's clearly intentionally vague,
0: and that's what's so scary about this legislation and about and about legislation like this is is that's on purpose they want to create a environment of fear and an environment where we're scared about like whether or not we can talk about this for the fear of like one parent deciding that they don't like gay people essentially or don't like trans people
2: I think it also has impact beyond, right? Because the schools are liable for it. Therefore, it's impacting libraries, books that are available language, you know, even doing things like family trees, right? Because it's inevitable that I think the statistics are something crazy. Like every classroom in the US has at least one one set of gay parents or something like that. Uh, obviously, you live in you know cities, you have a lot more than that. But statistically speaking, so even if you were doing a basic you know exercise in like who are your parents, like tell us about your family, at some point, some kid is going to talk about mom and mom or dad and dad, you know. So it, it's not just It's so insidious and has such deep roots into everything else, into the education system. Obviously, it's very Orwellian.
0: Yeah, and and, and the other fear, right, is on top of that, we now have a book banning bill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually went to the Miami-Dade school board meeting a month and a half ago. They originally had super, super comprehensive sex ed. It was three R's curriculum, rights, respect, responsibility. And it's like an online guide, essentially, for Mm -hmm. teachers to use. And they were getting rid of it and replacing it with a textbook, which we don't love sex ed textbooks. You can't replace, like, it's hard to, they're hard to replace. You can't update Mm -hmm. them. And we talk about language, right? And you Mm -hmm. can't update the language of a textbook until you, like, buy a whole new one. And that's expensive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, went there, waited 12 hours to Mm say my piece. And they had removed this section on gender identity and sexual orientation. Even though the bill hadn't gotten into effect yet, this was like a month after the don't say gay bill was like signed into law. Mm. And this was, you know, middle school and high school. This wasn't even K through three. So this just goes to show how this applies, you know, sort of beyond, you know, elementary school. That's what's even scarier as well as the impact that this has sort of outside of the like most direct language of the bill. And now what they're trying to do is even with that, even with, you know, removing these sections, they had 300 parents who signed a petition to repeal this textbook, even though it had, they haven't even started using it yet, but they're given access to it if they approve it. And so because of this now, this book banning bill on top of the Don't Say Gable, on top of the Stop Woke Act, you, create this environment where it becomes so, so, so easy for uh, uh, this small minute minority of like bigoted parents to basically mm. control everyone else's education.
3: I also want to call out the fact that in the beginning, you know, we said, well, you're in Florida, so you have a lot to say about this, right? But it's not just Florida. I want to note that because I think that folks in the rest of the country and the rest of the world can look and say, wow, that's wild as if it's over there. And just noting, you know, shortly thereafter in Florida, there's Alabama, there's Ohio, there's Louisiana, there's Tennessee, there's Texas, like then also the the countries around the world that look to the United States to set direction and precedent are also learning from this. And so I I just I want to get your thoughts on that, that it's this is not
0: just about Florida. Republicans use each other as templates and that's allows this sort of legislation to spread so far and wide because they, they see bigotry and they're, they're like, that was such a good example. High five, brother. And decide to pass the same legislation. You see this with things like the abortion ban, how those things pick up steam, and you see that with this and with, with the Don't Say Gable. And, and what's interesting is the ways in which when we talk about LGBT inclusive education, right? Again, that goes beyond sex. And one of the things that that delves into, right, is LGBT history. And as someone who who educates on LGBT history, one of the biggest pieces of context that I had going into this fight and understanding this fight is someone who's been like in this educator space for you know two three years now are no primal, homo laws which is legislation that, in varying language, prevents the promotion of a homosexual lifestyle, so to speak. Uh, it's generally the language that they like to use. These really came out uh, in the peak of the AIDS epidemic, when there was a lot of fear surrounding homosexuality. And so states um, started passing these, these quote-unquote no-promo-homo laws to limit these discussions in schools. For the two decades, two, three decades since, we've been slowly repealing these laws. Like these have been like on their way out. They were seen as like these really archaic things that are, that are relics of the past. So when we saw this, we look at it and you're like, that's a no promo homo law. You like, you immediately see it and you see the, how that's reflected in that. And that's what we talk about. Like when we talk about history, we say the reason that we teach history is so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, because these were mistakes. Like we had pretty much established that these were mistakes. These were things that even in these like Southern, like deep South states, they were repealing these laws and they found a way to reframe the language. You know, they took out the word lifestyle and things like that. and They found ways to, to reframe the language in a way that made a, what is quite literally a no promo homo law more palatable to the general public. So that's the thing where we when we talk about history, and why we need LGBT inclusive education, because that immediately gave context from to me, it gave context to everyone else in these spaces of how harmful this this would be. And we're already seeing that even though it hasn't even, you know, gotten to effect uh, until until July first.
3: I want to also note that even though right now we're talking about sex education in the don't say gay bill
2: this is not about sex education it's not about sex
0: education right. it's about
2: <laughs> education as a whole
0: right right and that's the thing that that also becomes so so scary is the ways in which we sexualize lgbt people that's what's so what's so harmful is the ways in which our experiences as queer people are are diluted into just what we do under the covers what we do what we do in the bedroom which th- are, those are those are big parts of anyone's life but they're not the only part of our lives. What also becomes scary is the ways in which This perception that LGBT inclusive education is, you know, here's a vocab list with with a list of neo-pronouns and here's here's a list of genders and sexualities that you have to memorize. And also here's how to have gay sex, like here's how to douche or something like that. And that's like, that's not what LGBT inclusive education is. Like it's, it's our history, it's our community. It like goes so far beyond that. And also in a much broader sense than memorizing vocab. And that's what people I think don't understand about about that.
3: I am wondering about what the impact looks like then for someone, for a kid who is in that space, right? Because first, I imagine it's going to have an impact on your ability to learn because there's constant distraction around who you are and understanding that who you are is not represented in that space. I imagine it's going to have an impact at home with your relationships and and what you learn about partnership and relationship and love based on what you're experiencing in the home. I imagine it's going to create senses of shame. And so in the work that you do with with young people, what are you seeing about how these types of laws are impacting people on the individual level?
0: I think it comes down once again to fear, unfortunately. And that fear has has a real place in reality is what's what's even scarier. I think one of the most harmful and, and tragic turn of events beyond this bill, in the process of fighting it, was when Christina Poucha, who's Rhonda Diane DeSantis' press secretary, tweeted out the day before the full Senate vote that it would be more accurate to call this an anti-grooming bill and that anyone who opposes this bill is a groomer or supports the grooming of children that are five to eight years old. And that's so harmful. I mean, gay people have been getting called groomers for, you know, since the dawn of time probably. And to see that resurface as sort of a mainstream talking point, and really it's become like a mainstream talking point, which is what's even scarier. And I think that that again, it comes down to language and the ways in which the words that we use impact the community. I mean, I mean, as someone who's you know, unfortunately, experienced grooming and things like that uh, firsthand, it's really, really harmful when you have hundreds of people in your TikTok comments that are calling you a groomer.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry about that. That
3: so doesn't
0: hurt.
2: Actually, I recently had a, uh, a conversation with a client who is in a relatively longer-term relationship with a partner who is not out to their kids in an effort to protect the kids. And we had to have a serious conversation around how we don't need to protect children from gay people. And even though she herself identifies as bisexual and is with a woman who identifies as a lesbian, they keep you know, they sleep in separate rooms when the kids staying over, they've been keeping this from them for, for years. And, and the conversation was around how they probably know, but the fact that you're trying to hide it from them is making them feel that what you're doing is wrong, even though, and reinforcing the message they might be getting that it is wrong. So the idea that we need to somehow protect children from gay people is so prevalent.
3: Ariana believes that politicalization of identity reinforces
1: that it is not
3: safe to be one's authentic self.
1: It's so unfair. Like there's something that's so cosmically wrong, you know, about this process that we're seeing. And generally speaking, having your identity being so politicized does one of two things. It either sort of activates you or it ends up repressing you even further. And so I think for a lot of people who live in places where it's really politically not safe to be who they are, that's going to lead to many, many more years potentially of of barriers of not being able to step into who you are and not being able to figure it out. Because your your identity is sort of, it's broadly put on display for people who don't identify that way to pick it apart and to comment on it and to write it into laws and 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 that process is absolutely destructive to being able to for you personally to figure out really who you are and what's okay. Identity formation is so vulnerable and it's, it's fragile. And as people grow and they see this sort of process reflected in the world, I think that that's going to be this, it's a huge deterrent. You know, why would I spend all of this time figuring out this part of myself if I'm just going to be discriminated or if it's not going to be safe? And so maybe I'll focus on these other parts of who I am because that's safer. That's sort of the one side of it. But then the other people get really activated. It's sort of as this like, lighting a fire, lighting this passion, which again, just is unfair. And I think a lot of people will say I turned into an activist because of my identity. I never wanted to be this. This isn't who I am. But like I have to be because I have no choice because I'm fighting for myself.
2: In addition to working against systems of oppression, there's personal work to be done around
1: acceptance. And I actually often will tell people that sometimes the process towards accepting yourself starts actually with accepting other people first, because oftentimes that's more accessible. You can love in someone else what you hate in your own self. And that's just kind of this quirk, I think, of people. You have to understand really the benefits of accepting other people, tolerating other people's identities that might differ from yours, because it's amazing what happens, right? Like as as soon as you accept this identity in someone else who you love, then this unfolds, you know, all of a sudden you have higher capacity for empathy, you have greater perspective on the world, you have a greater sense of possibility, the way that you think about things and see things has expanded. And all of that is because someone who you love has an identity that might be different from yours or someone you care about. And so I think by accepting that, those are the outcomes. But the barriers to being able to do that are often because people have conditioned biases. We all do. It's really normal. And it's not something to be ashamed of, but it's something to be aware of. And with that awareness comes the responsibility to then challenge your own harmful or misinformed thinking. And then we can't say that without also recognizing that people come from a place of fear, More often than not, if you don't accept someone else's identity, that usually means that you're afraid of the unknown, you're afraid of safety, concerns, you're afraid of vulnerability, you're used to thinking like the crowd instead of as an individual. And so really exposing yourself to the things that you're afraid of. And that really is an internal process for the purpose of being able to accept those around us and support those around us.
2: That's fascinating. I also just picked up on what you were saying about getting a sense of ourselves through other people. I think that's that's super interesting. And I do agree with you that sometimes you can find those things that you don't like about yourself and others and, and somehow be fascinated and, and endeared by that. Do you also find that the things that people are most critical about other people sometimes also show the things that are most critical about themselves? And that is also some insight as well?
1: Yeah, 100%. It's this kind of really uncomfortable and sort of ironic process of like paying attention to your own reactions to like things that you see in other people. And I don't think that this is true for everyone. But I do think it's true for a lot of people that what you don't like in someone else is something that you don't like in yourself. And it can really be a mirror. And I think that there's this process of, are you willing to peel back those layers of your own reactions and your own emotions and maybe accept or acknowledge that there's a part of you that is represented in this other person that you never got the chance or the opportunity to really learn about or discover each layer like has this function and so we have to look at the function of the layers like why are the parts of ourselves buried where are they buried why are they buried and what does each layer do for us maybe it had to be there for self protective reasons or safety reasons but when you start to become a fully formed and safe person moving throughout the world, then you have this opportunity to look at what you might not like in others might actually be something that needs a little more nourishment within yourself. What ties together
3: our internal identity work and the work of building systems that recognize who we are as whole people is curiosity. Being willing to peel back the layers and ask questions within yourself and within our society
1: what can we do to uplift ourselves and those around us is this piece of, and and this is actually ties in so well to what you do in the name of this podcast, but I really encourage like doubts and questioning. Like we always have to question forever for our whole lives that that's really healthy. And, you know, a lot of people will come to me, people who are doing gender identity exploration or looking into their sexuality, it's fraught with doubts And, and that's really normal. And I think that sometimes signals to people that, they're not on the right track or that they're, that this is not an identity that's authentic. And I always sort of try to pause people there and and sort of say like, it's really normal and expected to have doubts because you've been, let's look at your life experience and let's look at your conditioning. And that doesn't automatically mean, you know, that you are not this way or that this is not your identity, but rather it means that this needs a little bit more attention, a little bit more nurturing and pay attention to the intuition, what your gut's telling you. And then if that ever crosses over into sort of skepticism or cynicism, like, then we have a problem. But this idea of this constant questioning, like, that's actually really healthy, and a lot of people are uncomfortable with that.
3: And to your point, to continue to do that, you named in the beginning that identity can be conflicting and is also fluid. And so recognizing that whatever next step they take is not the decision for the rest of their life. It's something that they're trying on now to see how that feels and fits. One of the, Some of the work that I do with my clients is the the hot and cold game that we used to play as kids when you'd hide a object and people would run around and you'd get, you're getting colder, you're getting warmer and to play that game with themselves, to think about different scenarios, different relationships, different careers, and see if that feels warm in your body and we're starting to get closer or if it feels cool. And so again, just continuing to play that game with yourself over and over and say, what feels good?
2: I love that. It's so good. Yes. <laughs> According to MOX. Information and education is the key that opens the door to curiosity
0: and exploration. I think that part of that is being able to have this access to this sort of information on a, on a wide scale. And that also means outside of schools, unfortunately. I always say LGBT inclusive education was already a patchwork system in the state of Florida and beyond. And this has only made it more so. It's only made that more tenuous, more strained. And it's so important that we're able to have access to these resources outside of schools as well. So PRISM focuses on digital education, so reaching young people where they increasingly turn to for information, which is online. It's on social media, it's on the internet. And being able to have that sort of multifaceted approach to expanding these resources is so important for people feeling seen, for feeling heard. And then the other thing is, is just larger societal shifts It's understanding that we exist outside of sex, we exist outside of purely that and attraction is so much more than that. And and gender identity is especially is so much more than that. And that is that sort of destigmatizing that we really need to approach.
3: And is there anything on kind of the individual basis, like what can we do within our family and friend communities to recognize and appreciate our identity and the identity of those around us?
0: Again, a lot of that is listening and learning as far as this, these sort of external identities and, and, and experiences is, is understanding to, you know, being able to interpret and process and, and listen to the experiences of other people. But I think the other thing is is advocating on people's behalf as well. People who who are in the closet or aren't able to speak to that on their own. And I think that that's so important, right? More often than not, you can see time and time again the ways in which just knowing a gay person, like just knowing a trans person impacts your view of gay people and trans people so, so, so heavily. And I know, especially on the, the trans side, the number of people in my life who were like very staunchly transphobic and then like met a trans person, and actually that trans person became a regular fixture in their life, whether it be a professor, uh, a friend, or a coworker. and the ways in which just engaging with trans people humanizes them in such a way that you tolerate trans people so much more.
2: As Pride Month comes to a close, our hope is that the conversation around identity formation, sexual orientation, and gender expression continues to remain in the zeitgeist. Acceptance and celebration of LGBTQ folk doesn't end when June does. Hard-fought rights are at risk, and it's important that we challenge a status quo that has been designed to oppress and suppress. You can do that by donating money to organizations that take on the fight on the front lines, by focusing your time and attention to causes that align, and of course, by voting. Get involved with your local elections and help and enable others to do the same. Many
3: thanks to Dr. Ariana Moran and Max Fanning. If you're interested in working with Dr. Moran, you can find out more about her practice at elementalpsych.com. You can follow Max on Instagram and TikTok at Max Fenning, and support the work of Prism by going to prismfl.org and following on Instagram and TikTok at prismfl. If you were inspired by this podcast, have questions, or would like to share your own story on identity, first head to our Facebook group and share your story and discuss the episode with other listeners. Or You can email us at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com or call us at 646-450-9079. Help expand this message by sharing this podcast with others and leaving a comment on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening. And if you're still curious, then join us on Patreon for many episodes, special after hours content, and over 50 videos from our educator-led workshops. Go to Patreon
2: at wearecuriousfoxes. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, who allows us to fully express our identity on every episode. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work. And we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. I think you're going to
3: cough. Yeah, (laughs) I (laughs) am. Sorry. Effie has become a smoker since we last met. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) Uh, insert cough. No. <laughs> curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends.
0: Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.
2: Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.